Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Now let's return to our story about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Emanuel Block called Julius Rosenberg as the defense's first witness. His attorney was able to get into the record benign political attitudes and denials of both David and Ruth Greenglass's accounts of alleged espionage, flatly stating that they never happened. Block managed to skirt any information about Julius's membership or even activity involving organizations deemed to be politically subversive. Eventually, Judge Kaufman impatiently interrupted and directly asked Rosenberg if he ever was a member of any organization that concerned Russia or communist ideology. Julius responded by essentially invoking his Fifth Amendment right to not answer. Certainly, this was a legally tenable response, but one that would greatly alienate a jury who unfortunately would associate such a response with guilt. After Julius denied ever meeting Elizabeth Bentley, Jacob Golos, or even discussing David Greenglass's work at Los Alamos, Block also had Julius deny each and every allegation of wrongdoing. With that, Block turned the witness over to Sapol for cross-examination. Sapol pressed Julius about associates from CCNY or membership in various communist groups, but Julius again invoked the Fifth Amendment and refused to answer. He also minimized any discussions with his wife about David or their interactions with the green glasses, usually claiming that he couldn't recall such details, and denied that a console table and gold watches mentioned by Greenglass were gifts from the Russians. Sapol's meticulous repetition of Julius's occasional contradictions undid the image that Block tried to create of a Julius as a typically patriotic American especially when the prosecutor was able to elicit that Julius got most of his knowledge about the Soviet Union and communism from reading The Daily Worker. Julius finally left the stand after an ordeal that made him seem to be evasive at best. Ethel was next, trying to avoid the Fifth Amendment calamity that plagued her husband's testimony. Alexander Block walked her through brief denials of her brother and sister-in-law's assertions. Her poor health and child care issues were also mentioned, the inference that participating effectively in an espionage ring was a definite stretch. Sapol attacked her denials by introducing her grand jury testimony, in which she refused to answer similar questions by invoking the Fifth Amendment. Judge Kaufman allowed this tactic, again creating doubt about Ethel's credibility and asking specific questions of the witness about this issue. Before she left the stand, Alexander Block had her again proclaim her innocence, the best he could do under difficult circumstances. The defense then rested its case. However, Sapol wasn't finished. He got Evelyn Cox, a part-time cleaning woman hired by the Rosenbergs in 1944, 
to testify that after she admired the living room console table, Ethel explained that it was a gift to her husband from a friend. Julius had previously testified that he had bought it at Macy's. David Greenglass's attorney's secretary then testified that Louis Abel, Ruth's brother, had delivered 3900 in cash after David was arrested, underlining that despite their denials that they were the source, the Rosenbergs could not explain where this money came from. Lastly, Ben Schneider was put on the stand to explain that in June of 1950, the entire Rosenberg family came into his photography shop and took numerous photos suitable for passports. Schneider was allegedly a last-minute find by the FBI, who only brought him into the courtroom on the previous day to identify Julius and Ethel. He testified emphatically that Julius told him that he needed passport photos to travel to France to settle an estate. Both Julius and Ethel repeatedly denied ever taking passport photos, a precursor to fleeing the country, Ethel going so far as to admit that they frequented photography shops because of their children's fascination with cameras. The photographer, with no reason to concoct such a story, was a devastating final witness, with only summation left in the trial. Morton Sobel did not testify, his attorneys not wanting the prosecution to be able to discuss his flight to Mexico and his political activities. They also believed that the prosecution had been unable to effectively connect Sobel to atomic espionage, critical to the charges he faced. In summation, Emanuel Bloch did the only thing he could do, chiefly attacking the Green Glass's credibility and reputation, essentially asserting that only horribly twisted and dishonest people would save themselves by testifying against and condemning their own flesh and blood. Morton Sobel's attorney, Edward Kuntz, was more abrasive, calling Max Elitcher a perjurer, also trying to save his own hide. Unfortunately, he had no explanation for Sobel's erratic behavior and subsequent flight to Mexico. Alexander Block, perhaps believing that the case against Ethel was weaker, chose not to present a summation at all. Then it was Sapol's turn. Initially, he reviewed the many other witnesses who corroborated the Green Glass's fundamental story, acknowledging that David, Ruth, and Max Elitcher were not particularly admirable. Sapol asserted that it was the Rosenbergs and not the government who chose these individuals as their criminal associates. Then he veered into both overreach and histrionics, stating, "These defendants before you are party to an agreement to spy and steal from their own country." to serve the interests of a foreign power, which today seeks to wipe us off the face of the earth. It would use the produce of these defendants, the information received through them, from these traitors to destroy Americans and the people of the United Nations. These defendants stand before you in the face of overwhelming proof of this terrible disloyalty, proof which transcends any emotional consideration and must eliminate any consideration of sympathy. No defendants ever stood before the bar of American justice less deserving of sympathy than these three. After Sapol was finished, Kaufman charged the jury, and at 3.37 p.m., they first proceeded to have dinner while accompanied by U.S. Marshals. They then headed back to the courthouse for deliberations. Surprisingly unsequestered during the trial, the 12 individuals got better acquainted and, after some preliminary discussion, agreed to take a secret vote. It was shockingly one-sided, so much so that the jurors reviewed evidence that they considered to be impressive. Only one juror was holding out in favor of Ethel Rosenberg, mostly because he did not want to execute the mother of two children. 
When the jury collectively asked the judge if they could recommend leniency as part of a verdict, his charge dealing with this issue was read back to the jurors, in short, stating that this should not be part of their deliberation. And even if they included such a recommendation, he could ignore it entirely. This information only made everyone more intransigent, and by midnight the foreman requested that they be allowed to continue in the morning. After a hotel to house all 12 individuals was hastily located, the jurors did not get to sleep until 2 in the morning and were scheduled for breakfast at 7 a.m. This development seems to have motivated some jurors to get the process over with quickly. The lone holdout, the recipient of polite but firm requests to change his mind. When the foreman asked him directly if he would feel comfortable if Ethel Rosenberg was eventually released and conducted another conspiracy that doomed him and his children, he caved in. Only an hour after officially beginning their deliberations on March 29th, the jury announced that it had reached unanimous verdicts for all three defendants. When the words guilty were read in open court, both Julius and Ethel Rosenberg remained completely unemotional. One week later, Judge Irving Kaufman pronounced sentence. He began the process by stating that his burden was so great that I believe the court alone should assume the responsibility. But Kaufman had actually gone to great lengths to solicit advice at various levels of the government to decide the Rosenberg's fate. He specifically asked Saypol for his opinion, and when the prosecutor responded by recommending capital punishment for the Rosenbergs and 30 years for Sobel, Kaufman asked if this was the official position of the DOJ. When Sobel told him he didn't know, Kaufman asked him to go to Washington immediately and find out. The answer the prosecutor received was disturbing to both individuals. After speaking with the Deputy Attorney General and the DOJ's Chief of its Criminal Prosecutions Division, it was clear that there was opposition to executing Ethel Rosenberg. J. Edgar Hoover had also conveyed his opposition, believing that the execution of a mother of two children eventually would tarnish the FBI's reputation and make the agency appear to be both vindictive and repressive. The government also believed that the strategy of using Ethel as leverage to get her husband to confess and name names was no longer tenable. When Saypol conveyed this information to Judge Kaufman, he told Saypol that he did not want to hear Justice's recommendation in open court. That would subject him to criticism that he would be exceeding the wishes of the prosecution. This was the actual reason for Kaufman to assume sole responsibility verbally for the sentence without any courtroom recommendation from Saypol. Understanding that this certainly was one of the most important judicial moments of the 20th century, Irving Kaufman was determined to leave his stamp on the proceeding in a way that was unequivocal and sensational. When he began a lengthy oration justifying his sentence, Kaufman echoed the sentiment of Saypol's summation when he stated, I consider your crime worse than murder. Plain deliberate contemplated murder is dwarfed in magnitude by comparison with the crime you have committed. In committing the act of murder, the criminal kills only his victim. The immediate family is brought to grief, and when justice is meted out, the chapter is closed. But in your case, I believe your conduct in putting into the hands of the Russians the A-bomb years before our best scientists predicted Russia would perfect the bomb has already caused, in my opinion, the communist aggression in Korea, with the resultant casualties exceeding 50,000, and who knows, that millions more of innocent people may pay the price of your treason. Indeed, by your betrayal, you undoubtedly have altered the course of history to the disadvantage of our country. 
Kaufman also addressed the issue of the Rosenbergs as parents, especially Ethel, when he added, Indeed, the defendants Julius and Ethel Rosenberg placed their devotion to their cause above their own personal safety and were conscious that they were sacrificing their own children should their misdeeds be detected, all of which did not deter them from pursuing their course. Love for their cause dominated their lives. It was even greater than their love for their children. Finding no reason to show mercy, Judge Kaufman then sentenced both Julius and Ethel Rosenberg to death sometime during the week of May 21, 1951. Although both Rosenbergs presumed that Julius was very likely to get the death penalty, Ethel's sentence was a tremendous shock that for the first time elicited a visibly emotional response. The couple's complexion suddenly drained and became pale as they were led to cells outside of the courtroom. The third defendant, Morton Sobel, was given 30 years, a harsh sentence that was also stunning. Sobel had actually no way of knowing that in his case, J. Edgar Hoover, among others, had requested the death penalty. The next day, Kaufman still had to deal with the matter of sentencing David Greenglass, who already had entered a guilty plea. Officially, Greenglass was to be sentenced at the conclusion of the Rosenberg trial. Now, that moment was at hand. His attorney, O. John Roggy, greatly responsible for convincing the Greenglasses to cooperate, believed that the prosecutors certainly owed him one and figured that he had at least a gentleman's agreement that David Greenglass would get off lightly. Ironically, in a pre-sentencing statement to the judge, Roggy began to use some of the same justifications Manny Block used during his pre-sentencing comments. Roggy asked for three years, hoping the judge would at most impose a five-year sentence. Instead, Kaufman gave Greenglass 15 years, which eventually turned into nine and a half, served at the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary. Upon hearing this, Ruth Greenglass almost fainted in the courtroom. Her husband was also stunned by the length of punishment. Roggy had indicated all along that the sentence might even be suspended, but certainly nothing approximating 15 years. As the Rosenbergs eventually became an international cause celeb, their relative was taken away, deposited in a federal prison, and forgotten. A reviled rat to even those who were in favor of severely punishing Julius and Ethel. Ruth Greenglass was never charged with any crime related to the Rosenberg case. Less than a week after sentencing, Ethel Rosenberg was transferred from the Women's House of Detention to Sing Sing Prison in Ostning, New York. There she was placed in the wing of the prison that also contained the electric chair used to perform executions. Manny Block already had filed appeals, so the execution date set by Kaufman was no longer in place, but his attempt to stop the transfer was denied. She was to be the only occupant of the women's section of this wing, assigned to a tiny cell that contained a metal bed with a three-inch thick mattress. Completely isolated, she was attended by four females who rotated duty sitting in proximity to her cell. It is believed that this punishment was intended not to get Ethel to reveal information, but to admit her guilt. The government already sensitive to the possibility that her conviction might engender both criticism and skepticism. Understanding that she might never be released from prison, she began to discuss with Block the possibility of a visit with her sons. Michael and Robert were now living with Julius's mother, Sophie Rosenberg, but the frequently rambunctious boys were an overwhelming responsibility. Block saw to it that a nurse was hired to help Sophie, but this created more problems when the two women disagreed on how to handle the children. 
With Julius still back in Manhattan, Ethel could only communicate with him by letter. Julius himself had been warned that his cell might be bugged, and he was restricted to interacting with only one prisoner, a man by the name of Jerome Tartikow, a car thief serving a two-year sentence who was permitted to play chess with Julius on a regular basis. Tartikow immediately offered his services to the FBI and was a regular informant who was also the source of information of the photography shop that the Rosenbergs patronized right before their arrest. Throughout Julius's incarceration, during and after his trial, Tartikow would provide regular reports to the FBI concerning some of Julius's former associates. Incredibly, after Tartikow served out his sentence and other pending charges were dropped, he was encouraged by the FBI to ingratiate himself with Emanuel Block and even attempt to get a job within his law firm. When Sing Sing officials agreed to allow monthly visits of the Rosenberg children to the prison, Block, a New York City native who couldn't drive very well, gladly accepted Tartikow's offer to volunteer as a chauffeur. Eventually, especially with controversy increasing over the potential execution of the Rosenbergs, Tartikow seems to have thought better of his behavior. In early 1953, he suddenly disappeared, eventually writing to Manny Block, claiming that he was pursuing a new business venture, but would do anything to help the Rosenbergs escape their increasingly predictable fate, also encouraging Block to convince both Rosenbergs to confess before it was too late. One can only wonder if this con man took this one final stab on behalf of the FBI in but another attempt to get Julius to reveal additional information. Despite the Cold War hysteria that influenced the Rosenberg trial, the defendants had high hopes for their appeals, about to be heard by the Second Circuit of the Federal Court. Block was greatly encouraged by the fact that one of the three-member panel hearing the appeal was Jerome Frank, a respected member of the court with liberal leanings concerning civil liberty. The appeal focused mostly on the propriety of the green glass testimony, the inability of the government to prove that the Rosenbergs caused significant harm to the government, and the behavior of Judge Kaufman, who through his constant questions and rulings unfairly influenced the jury. Unfortunately, in his subsequent opinion, Frank ruled against the defense on every point, only his exception to the sentence meted out, possibly an invitation to the Supreme Court to eventually weigh in on that matter, was a small ray of hope in an otherwise crushing judicial defeat. By now, both Rosenbergs were communicating with leftist publications that frequently published their opinions, and the appeals court decision only solidified their belief that their escape from execution could only result from public protest. If traditional American media were not only quick to condemn the Rosenbergs and exploit popular Cold War hysteria in doing so, other media entities now emerged to advocate a very different perspective, that the Rosenbergs were completely innocent victims. The National Guardian newspaper's editors, closely associated with the Progressive Party movement that decried militarism, racial segregation, and advocated for New Deal expansion and women's rights, met personally with Manny Block. The paper then proclaimed on its front page the question, The Rosenberg case. Is this the Dreyfus case of Cold War America? The paper's articles offered little factual refutation, but already confirmed an emotional perspective shared by many Americans who believed that the Rosenberg case was nothing more than a political show trial and witch hunt to punish individuals with progressive attitudes. 
This journalism galvanized a wide-ranging group of celebrities, civil libertarians, and activists in an ever-burgeoning movement that eventually consisted of individuals including Paul Robeson, Nelson Algren, Albert Einstein, Ruby Dee, and W.E.B. Dubois. This activism was reinforced in October of 1952, when the Supreme Court refused to take up the case. The U.S. government did not limit its attempted intimidation to only the Rosenbergs, when another jailhouse informant indicated that Morton Sobel might be willing to implicate other alleged members of a Rosenberg spy ring in the event his appeal was denied, the government began pressuring Sobel by floating rumors that if he didn't incriminate others, he would be transferred to Alcatraz, the harshest prison in the federal system. Whether Sobel actually considered flipping or whether he was the victim of misleading information, he ultimately refused to cooperate and on December 3, 1952, he was removed from his New York jail and transported directly to Alcatraz, where he remained until February 1958. The refusal of the Supreme Court to take up the Rosenbergs' case should have been a grim development for the defendants. Instead, Julius Ethel and even Manny Block himself agreed that only the characterization of the entire legal process as a sham and increasing public protest would deliver their freedom. Now also the rallying cry became clemency and acknowledgement that the Rosenbergs were entirely innocent. This was a divergence from the previously stated goal of a legal review of the case and possible retrial. A schism developed between ardent communists and other less extreme individuals, the communists wanting to portray the Rosenbergs as completely innocent victims of typically vicious American capitalism, fascism, and anti-Semitism. Anyone who didn't agree was attacked as a fool or a dupe of the government. The Rosenbergs themselves composed letters printed in the press that were stridently detached from reality, stating in 1952 that we are an ordinary man and wife. Like others, we spoke for peace because we did not want our little sons to live in the shadow of war and death. That is why we are in the death house today as a warning to all ordinary men and women. By now, Julius Rosenberg was also ensconced in Sing Sing, allowed to meet with his wife once a week, albeit separated by wire mesh. Manny Block was able to meet with his clients, but he was hampered by the presumption that his entire conversation was monitored by the ever-present guard. At least one member of the Greenglass family, her brother Bernie, occasionally visited Ethel. Her mother came only once, in January 1953, and even then remonstrated her for not acknowledging her brother's version of events. Despite no support from their families, the groundswell supporting the Rosenbergs' cause became an international torrent. A demonstration in front of the White House culminated with a widely publicized photo of the delivery of a letter from Michael Rosenberg to President Eisenhower with the simple request to, Let my mommy and daddy go. A second appeal by Block was rejected in early 1953, but the considerable and very public opposition prompted Irving Kaufman to aggressively pursue execution as quickly as possible. President Eisenhower was inaugurated on January 20, 1953, and when he quickly refused to grant clemency, Kaufman scheduled the Rosenbergs' execution for March 9th. This hasty attempt to eliminate the controversy was impeded by Judge Learned Hand, who granted a stay of execution and specifically criticized the government's attempt to speed up the process. 
the tumult over the case was having an effect on some of the members of the Supreme Court who realized that only their involvement could potentially reassure the American people that the Rosenbergs were being treated fairly. When Manny Block submitted a new motion on June 6, 1953, concerning purported new evidence about memos from the Green Glasses attorney Roggy and the recent discovery of the whereabouts of the console table, this motion was rejected in a matter of minutes by Kaufman and again rejected on June 10th by the Court of Appeals without even hearing oral arguments. The Rosenberg's execution was now only eight days away. Pressure on President Eisenhower was also intensifying as the Rosenberg case was becoming even more controversial in Europe, especially France, with even traditional media referring to the impending execution as barbaric. Pressured by Catholics all over the world, Pope Pius XII issued a request for mercy. They note of Eisenhower's resolve, adherents of the Rosenbergs might not have even pursued requests for clemency. In a private response to a close friend and former Columbia University colleague's letter, Eisenhower very specifically rejected every argument raised, claiming that the executions must take place as a symbolic message to communist regimes that free governments are not weak and disposed to tolerate subversive behavior. Instead, they must understand that said subversives will suffer grave punishment. Such a message essentially distilling the case down to an issue not of justice, but of foreign policy, did not bode well for any last-minute reprieves. It was clear that any rescue of the Rosenbergs would now have to result from judicial and not executive remedy. But in the last days of this effort, skepticism about Manny Block and his ability to achieve such outcome began to surface. Fike Farmer was a progressive political activist attorney from Tennessee who became interested in the Rosenberg case and came to the conclusion that a fundamental appellate issue had been completely ignored. But because Manny Block had exclusive control over access and legal strategy concerning the Rosenberg's appeals and clemency campaign, Farmer was rebuffed not only by various prominent justice for Rosenberg's committee members, but by Block himself, who was generally dismissive of Farmer's arguments. Farmer's fundamental point was that the Espionage Act of 1917 no longer applied as the Atomic Energy Act of 1946 took precedence, and this 1946 act spelled out specifically that a death penalty could only be imposed in a prosecution under violation of the act if the defendants willfully intended to damage the national defense and a jury recommended the death penalty. In essence, the Rosenberg case was flawed from its inception, the defendants not even charged under the correct statute. Interestingly, Block continually rebuffed Farmer on this issue, going so far as to object to Farmer's interference in writing, calling it an unwarranted intrusion and a breach of legal ethics. But with time running out, Block subsequently decided to adopt Farmer's idea in a petition of his own in a hearing before Judge Kaufman. However, during the hearing, with Farmer present in the courtroom, Emanuel Block's presentation was both lackluster and disinterested, his responses in court seemingly deliberately ineffective. Subsequent to this hearing, which was unsuccessful, presuming that Block was going through the motions and had no intention of pursuing his approach, Farmer decided to file the petition on his own. Kaufman, having received Farmer's petition through his law clerk, angrily rejected the document and Block even sent the judge a telegram insisting that Kaufman ignore what he described as interlopers. 
At least this process unfolded quickly enough to allow Farmer to attempt to get a higher court to hear his legal argument. With the execution only days away, Farmer headed to Washington in a last-ditch effort to get someone to listen to his perspective. June 15, 1953 was the last day that the Supreme Court was in session before their summer vacation. Surprisingly, a justice that might have seemed sympathetic to the Rosenbergs had spent much of the spring session effectively shutting down any Supreme Court review. William O. Douglas was disliked by some of his colleagues, notably Felix Frankfurter, for a tendency to weigh public opinion and his public image as a liberal champion before making any decisions. In this case, a vote either to uphold or overturn a conviction would generate massive negative public reaction. As late as June 13th, Douglas voted against issuing a stay of execution to allow John Finnerty, an attorney with a lengthy history before the Supreme Court and an individual working closely with Manny Block, additional time to prepare arguments concerning the possibility that the Greenglasses had committed perjury with the full knowledge of Irving Saypole. In a 5-4 vote against issuing the stay, Douglas's decision was critical, and his persistent opposition to getting involved in the Rosenberg case remains inexplicable, especially considering subsequent events. Farmer could not be aware of Douglas's behind-the-scenes obstinance, and he considered the judge as well as Hugo Black prime candidates to hear his argument. Hurrying to Washington, Farmer made it to the office of the clerk of the Supreme Court where he encountered Finnity on the verge of attempting to file another last-ditch appeal. Farmer was able to get a 30-minute conference with Douglas, who also included the DOJ's James Kilsheimer in the meeting, most likely to get an immediate response to any salient issues that were raised. Farmer immediately impressed Justice Douglas by raising the issue of an improper charge. This was a new appellate point. But Farmer really scored points when he raised the circumstances of impounded testimony in the transcripts provided to the court. This testimony was technical information provided by David Greenglass that was deemed to be too sensitive and of potential value to a foreign government. Manny Block had agreed to this omission, considered a major blunder because it acknowledged that the information passed by David Greenglass was extremely sensitive. At the time, Block was possibly hoping to demonstrate the patriotism and cooperative attitude of the defense, but this maneuver was widely criticized as a mistake. Now, however, when Douglas asked the prosecution's advocates if the transcripts received were incomplete and was told they were, he was even more inclined to grant a stay. After briefly conferring with some of his colleagues, Justice Douglas did issue a stay of execution. At Sing Sing, the Rosenbergs were already in the midst of final visits with members of Julius's family. Informed of the stay, they were relieved, especially when the details of Douglas's order were made public. He not only issued a stay, he remanded the case back to the district court, an order that meant the case would have to make its way through the federal legal system again, a process that might take years. Douglas then left Washington and headed to the West Coast via automobile, accompanied by the woman who eventually became his wife. He believed that it would at least be during the fall session before the court grappled with the Rosenberg case again. Unfortunately, the Chief Justice Harold Vinson immediately ordered the court to convene the very next day to address Douglas's stay of execution. 
This highly unusual request was conveyed to Douglas via car radio as he traveled through Pennsylvania. Enraged, he immediately headed back to Washington. The next morning, when all of the attorneys involved with the defense met at the Supreme Court, they were informed by a clerk that they would have 90 minutes to make their case. Despite the fact that it was Farmer who was responsible for the hearing to begin with, Emanuel Block refused to allow him to sit at the defense table. Block also was in charge of deciding who would address the court and in what order. Finnerty went first, unleashing an ineffective harangue that criticized Sapol and Kaufman by name, and even criticized the process of the hearing itself as an insult to Justice Douglas, all possibly legitimate opinions, but not endearing legal argument. Next was Daniel Marshall, another Block associate, who also ineffectively criticized the haste with which the hearing was undertaken. Manny Block then rose and characterized the point in question concerning the Espionage Act as a very obscure legal argument that surely required more time for presentation and consideration. Obviously, minimizing the legal issue at hand struck even the justices as a curious legal strategy. Interrupting Block, Justice Hugo Black asked, Mr. Block, you do represent the Rosenbergs, do you not? and it's your duty to try and save them from the electric chair if possible. Is that right? When Block answered in the affirmative, Black continued, Then, Mr. Block, at this late hour, whether these points that have been brought to your attention are big points or little ones, don't you think you ought to espouse them rather than denigrate them? Block continued aimlessly on before finally allowing Farmer to address the court. He had 17 minutes left. He quickly got to the main point that the Atomic Energy Act was the only valid relevant statute involved. He also hoped to introduce the impounding of evidence that restricted the Supreme Court's ability to render a judgment while not even having the complete court testimony. But at this critical juncture, Farmer decided not to raise the issue, feeling that introducing the additional point would be deflected as a desperation ploy and might detract from what he considered a powerful argument. Although he eventually regretted this decision, Farmer was especially upset with Manny Block and the other attorneys, whose actions seemed designed to merely incite public opinion and did nothing to help the Rosenbergs. Farmer eventually came to the conclusion that the defense was actually intent on allowing the execution and martyring the Rosenbergs. At first blush, a fantastic idea, except that in his memoirs, William Douglas came to the same conclusion. This was also consistent with Block's attitude towards Farmer, an individual he obstructed and minimized at every turn. Following oral argument, Justices Black and Frankfurter agreed with Douglas that more time was necessary to address the arguments raised by Farmer. Five justices adamantly opposed the stay. A sixth would make the final vote 6-3 to vacate Douglas's stay of execution. Suddenly the Rosenbergs were only hours away from being put to death. Scheduled initially at 11 p.m. on June 18th, the announcement of the stay pushed the execution back by a day. After it was pointed out that 11 p.m. on June 19th, a Friday, would be during the Jewish Sabbath, Kaufman agreed that this timing was inappropriate. However, after Justice Douglas's stay was canceled at midday, the time of the execution was moved up to 8 p.m. that Friday, before sundown. There was so little time left that the Rosenbergs themselves decided to not have a last meal, spending the time together instead in Sing Sing's visiting area. Two FBI agents were frantically sent to locate and bring to the prison the electrician scheduled to 
to undertake the execution in time for the 8 p.m. deadline. Both Block and Farmer attempted additional last-minute efforts. Block to the White House, where he delivered unsuccessful personal pleas from the Rosenbergs to aides to President Eisenhower. Fike Farmer went to Hugo Black's residence to try and get another stay. Black, the most legally receptive jurist to the Rosenbergs throughout the ordeal. But when Farmer got to Black's home in the Virginia suburbs, nobody was there. The urgency of these missions were underlined by radio reports of the Rosenberg's step-by-step process leading up to their electrocution, including the prison barber shaving a patch on Julius's leg to allow for better conduction of electricity. At 7.20, the Rosenbergs were separated for the last time, having spent much of the day with each other. They were placed in small cells only a few feet away from the room which contained the electric chair. The FBI was also ready, having established an official presence that could potentially hear any last-minute confession in the event that either individual was so inclined. They should not have bothered. At approximately 8 p.m., Julius Rosenberg, accompanied by the prison rabbi, resolutely entered the room that contained the electric chair. The leather hood that obscured the grotesque facial results of electrocution, as well as electrodes, were quickly put in place. By 8.06, he was officially dead. Because prison authorities did not want Ethel to have to walk by Julius's holding cell, she went after Julius. The rabbi then went to retrieve Ethel, imploring her that her husband was now dead. If she had any information, she should come forth and spare her life. Later, he told a reporter that she merely maintained her innocence and proceeded directly to the execution chamber, pausing only to hug the prison matron accompanying her. After a prolonged process, she was also declared dead. Her body quickly wheeled to the prison morgue. According to religious custom, the Rosenberg funeral was carried out on Sunday, June 21st, within 48 hours of their death. Manny Block delivered their eulogy at a Brooklyn funeral home in front of hundreds of supporters and thousands standing outside, stridently denouncing President Eisenhower, Attorney General Brownell, and J. Edgar Hoover as, quote, presiding over a military dictatorship dressed in civilian garb, unquote. The subsequent burial of the Rosenbergs took place in one of the few Long Island cemeteries that would allow it. The Daily Worker, the official voice of the American Communist Party, silent during the Rosenbergs' legal struggle, now burst into full-fledged roar over this act of fascist violence. The Rosenberg children were orphaned, and while they had spent recent months with friends of their parents in Toms River, New Jersey, this solution was temporary, especially when the Toms River School Board attempted to restrict the children's access to the public school system, as their legal guardian, Manny Block, was not a resident. Privately, many families came forward wanting to adopt the children formally. From this group, Block chose Abel and Anne Mirapol, Abel, a poet and songwriter who composed Strange Fruit, the socially conscious civil rights anthem popularized by Billie Holiday. The Mirapols provided a loving and stable home for Michael and Robert, the children fading from public sight until reaching adulthood, by which time they became activists and vocal defenders of their biological parents. Assertions that part of Emanuel Bloch's hesitance to wage a more aggressive defense of the Rosenbergs and his occasional deference to such individuals as Irving Kaufman was his concern for his own livelihood and even freedom itself. After his vitriolic funeral oration and various other statements, disbarment proceedings were begun by the Bar Association. This process proved unnecessary. 
Emanuel Block died of a heart attack in his New York apartment on January 30, 1954, only seven months after the Rosenbergs. He was 52. Irving Saypol fulfilled the dream of every publicity-seeking prosecutor when he was elected to the New York State Supreme Court, where he served from 1952 to 1968. Roy Cohn achieved national prominence as counsel to Senator Joseph McCarthy during the Army-McCarthy hearings, one stepping stone along a path strewn with both controversy and notoriety. He died of AIDS in August of 1986, only five weeks after being disbarred over conduct involving the will of a dying client. Irving Kaufman developed a reputation as a liberal and effective jurist who eventually wound up on the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. However, his sensitivity concerning the Rosenberg matter seems to have been an obsession that prompted calls to the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover personally, requesting essentially harassment of any journalist or entity that waded into the increasingly contentious circumstances of the case. Kaufman was especially concerned that his conduct concerning the use of the Fifth Amendment would be overturned and legally ridiculed in a future case. He never did achieve the Supreme Court seat that was his lifelong ambition. While possibly the most reprehensible of the characters involved in the Rosenberg case, David Greenglass's aftermath became one of the more intriguing. Following his release from federal prison, he literally disappeared, his whereabouts a complete mystery. Eventually, he would resurface publicly interviewed for the definitive account of the Rosenberg's prosecution by author Ron Radosh. Although little about David's personal life was revealed, he did give the astonishing defense of his behavior in a matter-of-fact style, claiming that he could either give up his wife or give up his sister. He made no apology for his choice and showed no remorse. It was almost 20 years before he again resurfaced, this time after a relentless pursuit by New York Times reporter Sam Roberts. After tracking down Greenglass, it took years before the reporter was able to convince him to cooperate in the production of a book about his life and role in the Rosenberg case. In this book, he admitted that he lied about Ethel typing up his notes, but could not remember if his wife actually did the typing. When asked why he would cooperate with Roberts after all of these years, Greenglass, who was getting a share of the profits from the book, had a simple answer. I need the money. Eventually, the fall of the Soviet Union and the Venona cables, the Soviet communications that were secretly decoded by U.S. intelligence, made it clear that Julius Rosenberg was involved in espionage and most likely worked with a group of like-minded individuals. Morton Sobel maintained his innocence for many years following his release from prison in 1969. Eventually, he would admit that he gave secrets to the Russians during World War II, acknowledging essentially that he was a spy, but stressing that his information was technical and had nothing to do with atomic secrets. With these revelations, even Michael and Robert Mirapol have conceded that their father was involved in espionage, but they still vigorously maintain that their mother was the victim of the government's overreach and in recent years have campaigned for a presidential pardon. In 2016, in the waning days of the Obama administration, both Mirapols attempted to deliver a letter requesting a pardon to the president at the White House. They were denied entry and eerie replication of the protests that preceded their parents' execution. To this day, Ethel Rosenberg remains the only American female executed for a crime not involving murder. The U.S. government has shown no interest in changing the official legal circumstance of her conviction. 
Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books, The Rosenberg File, A Search for the Truth by Ronald Radosh and Joyce Milton, Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy by Ann Seba, and The Brother by Sam Roberts. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com, as well as information about my new novel, Is That Your Final Answer? If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.